Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> nice gotta get, gotta, yeah. Gotta get us pumped up. Why? We gotta get pumped up because <laughs> that's right. The man, the, the myth, the legend is here. Patrick Kilpatrick. Thank you so much for joining us today, my friend. Oh, thank right. you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome yeah. promo. Thank you. Those thank are you. some fun times. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to talk about it. I can't wait to hear from your perspective and your experience and your extensive, amazing career like i'm going through imdb and i'm like man he has done everything this is very very just phenomenal it's phenomenal stuff but i don't want to we got mr tony of the dead in the house with us joining us as a little side guest he is a big fan of yours patrick so he said can i sit in <laughs> it's like, yeah that's, that's perfectly fine but yeah tony any any questions man throughout the throughout the uh the podcast feel free my friend uh, but yes so how are you patrick what have you been up to recently my friend before we get into your movie <clears throat> Uh, I'm really great. We've got so much going on now uh, with the advent of COVID. I've been a screenwriter since about 1987, along with uh, the acting. And so mostly COVID was involved with uh, writing and producing uh, projects. Um, so we have a more and more coming online. Uh, that's been really wonderful and very Great work with a nice. really good team of graphic artists and researchers. And uh, my wife, Heidi, is involved in that brilliantly. Uh, Maria, who you've talked to, scheduling, and Raffaello, and Jeff, and Michael, and a whole bunch of people. So I have a great team, and we were fortunate enough to be hired to do a big Asian-themed thriller, and we delivered that. Um, and... And by delivering, I mean we delivered the script and the strategic materials. Now we're into the process of producing that one. Then we oh, got nice. hired for another one. It's a big crime thing that we're doing that's Ooh. set in a distant location. And uh, so that's been going. And that's taking taken us into all kinds of financing venues with studios and streaming services right, right, and foreign right. governments and countries and banks mm -hmm. and every kind of other thing you can imagine. So uh, um, it's been really rich, really, really good territory. I just signed on to do a, a film as an actor called uh, Borrowed Time 3 with a French company, and they're coming to L.A. to shoot some stuff with me. Nice. Uh, a man named Alan Delabi, which I'm really happy to be doing with. And also Costas Mandalore and Louis Mandalore and, and yes. uh, Matthias. Yeah, Matthias Hughes and Billy Blanks. It's All like right. a, a wild bunch uh, coming together in one project. So, um, you know, it's a combination of acting and writing and producing all the way down the line. And then the governor thing came up. So, um, as yeah, you know, I'm running for governor. Right, right, right. Wow. Let's, let's, let's save that toward the end of the. You got it. Yeah, you got let's it. Let's lead up to the. 
the the this very interesting. It's very fascinating. So let's lead up to that. But borrowed time three, you said. Yeah, I'm already, I mean, with that cast alone plus you in it. I'm already. I'm really excited for that. Well, you know, I love it when people call up, you chat with them for a few moments, and then off you go. They wire you a portion of your salary, and then a, a goodly portion, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. you're off and running. Uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't work that way as easily, but most of the time, I try to keep it like that in my life. You know, keep it working easily. Right. So, uh, but of course, as you climb the mountains towards tens of millions of dollars, sometimes there's a, some challenges in that regard. But right, we're right. meeting those challenges and moving forward, and our projects are, are superb, and uh, I'm very, very proud of all of them. We really put a lot of calculation and a lot of expertise for some, from some great people into all of them. Oh, nice. Wonderful. And I just, I, it's, it's funny because I just recently spoke to Matthias Hughes and uh, he wants to come on the show at some point. He, he wants to be here too, but he's so, he's so busy. He's all like, I was in, I was, I was filming in this other country and now I'm back. So I, I'm still in talks with him. But yeah, he said he wanted to be here to hang out. Well, with he's him. a great presence. He's the only one of those guys I haven't done multiple projects with. So I'm really kind of looking forward to working with him. Uh, I was watching, I got hired to do a Western with um, uh, a man named Alexander Nevsky, who's kind of the, I mean, he, he's not kind of, he's like, he makes Arnold Schwarzenegger look small. He's the <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger of Russia. And he's a movie producer as well. And so I, I got hired to do a Western with him with uh, the great Art Camacho, the martial art director and second unit director and stunt coordinator that I've worked with before. So, um, yeah, and I was watching Alexander's work, and so I picked up on Matthias Hughes, uh, who, of course, I'd heard about and watched over the years, but I, he was in a couple of Alexander's films, and a really great presence. So I, I, I'm looking forward to, to tearing it up with him. And he's still in shape. <laughs> he's still still in shape. He's yeah, in you know, um, <laughs> he looks like he's pretty ripped. Yeah, I loved him in uh, I Come in Peace, but... Uh... Well, hopefully I can get him on here in the future. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't seen that one. but uh, With him and uh, Dolph Lundgren? Yeah. Okay. I did Blackwater with Dolph. And, uh, yes. Which yes. was, we're gonna, we're gonna Dolph is too. always very professional and comes in, delivers the goods, and then he's gone. <laughs> That's so it. He does you know, a good job. You mentioned it now, so let's, let's talk about it a little bit. So it's kind of funny, you know, you, you worked with Van Damme early in his career, and now later in his career... So how was it? I actually to show support. I did buy this movie. I went out and buy it to show support. Uh, I have not watched it yet because I have so I'm, I'm so behind with watching movies and catching up with stuff. But I I I'm, I can't wait to check it out. But how was it working uh, on the set of uh, Blackwater? You know, um, a question like that. How was it working on Blackwater? It's kind of akin to saying. How was it fighting World War II? Oh, my goodness. Or something. That sounds adversarial or something. But you're talking about such a a rich terrain of conversation that, um, I mean, I I have a whole chapter about Blackwater in uh, my volume two of Dying for Living coming out. 
because it was it was such a special project on a lot of levels. As you say, it was the first time I'd worked with Jean Claude in something like twenty nine years. Right, and um, and to that in itself was unique. And then it took place mostly on the USS Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, which is one of the ships that gave cover to my father during World War II as he stormed the beaches in the Pacific um, in Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Um, He actually didn't storm. He swam ashore as an underwater demolition team guy. And so, and received, he was a Purple Heart recipient and um, a Silver Star recipient. So there, that there was that, um, and then there's all the craziness that occurred. First of all, let me come from the outside. Mobile itself is a fascinating place. And the food is extraordinary. And my wife and I had a grand time there. The beaches are this sugar sand uh, down there that are really, really beautiful. It was Mardi Gras time while we were there. Um, and then you have this film itself, which was this crazy bacchanal of indulgence and lack of discipline on on certain people's parts and at the same time they managed to pull it together and um i think i really am going to reserve that chapter in the book for okay that because well, I, got, I gotta get the book now <laughs> it was one of the craziest experiences i've ever had Oh, wow. So I had a delightful time with my wife, but I think I was the only one that wasn't, I don't mean this in any moral sense, but I think I was the only one who wasn't conducting himself like uh, the last days of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, on the movie set. So that was kind of a strange circumstance for me because here I am in this monogamous relationship and it was a complete love fest from beginning to end with 60-year-old actors and 25-year-old makeup artists. And it was just, and and former porn actresses involved in it and Jean-Claude with everything that he brings to the the equation, uh, which goes from tremendous heart to complete brain organic damage. Uh, I mean, it's just a crazy, crazy situation. (laughs) Wow. It sounds like I'm trying. I'm not diminishing no. him in any way. It's no, just no. that he's had his life, and he brings to the equation. I mean, there were actors who wanted to kill him. Right, right. They wanted to go in, drag him out of his trailer, and beat him till death. Right. Uh, you know, and you actually don't act with Jean Claude because he rarely comes out of the trailer, and. Uh, so you're acting with a stunt double. You're acting with a um, a screen, a script supervisor, which I don't mind. I mean, yeah. you give me give me a C stand with a smiley face on it, and I'll do my stuff. But um, how they put the editing together for that movie, I don't know. So right, wow. Uh, there's a whole bunch of nuances to it, and uh, again. Without covering the whole terror, terrain, I'll say go to Dying for a Living, Volume 2, Wasted Talent in the Valley of Debacle, and that'll be out soon. Okay. It's all show business all the time. And <laughs> when the is that truth, coming out? The, what? When is that coming out? 
Well, you know, I was happily polishing it. Okay. And I was about page 120 because it was already all written. But right. then two things happened. Two or about three things happened. I got hired to do that Asian uh, thriller, which I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God, this lets us talk about everything that's going on in Asia right now and into the future. Yeah. And, and great gift and privilege to do that. And then... Sure enough, after that one, we got hired to do another one. So it's like the I, I was happy just to polish my book and go out on a book tour again and yeah, all this yeah. other stuff. But this other stuff, movie stuff, just picked us up and catapulted us right back into the A-list of movie scripting and producing. And so um, I have taken a little bit of time just to do things. The other thing was COVID happened. And I realized I was writing two books. I was writing this book about my action career and then my producing career. And then I was writing about this thing that was this complete uh, cataclysm that had hit the country and the world, which was COVID at the right. same time. So um, I'll get back to it when I can. But meanwhile, the producing stuff is accelerating. And as you say, we're saving that. The political stuff is accelerating so fast that, you know, it's, I don't know when I'm going to get back to it. But I've sworn that I will finish it sometime 2021. Okay. So, okay and, and get it on. But, um, and then I have to have a section that's things I forgot in volume one. Right, right. So it's like, it's, uh, I'm excited to get back because it's like an old friend. Yeah. I got to get back to that kind of writing sometime even though I adore the screenwriting and I adore the acting and I adore the political process right now. So there awesome. you go. All right. That's awesome. Uh, really quick. I know we're going to get to death warrant at some point, but since you mentioned Blackwater earlier, and I know you're trying to save, you know, the more interesting tidbits for the book, which I, I have to go out and buy when it's available, but you know, uh, I, could, there... I could go on and on. It, it's like, not. It, here, here's the thing. My lovely friend, there's no shortage of interesting tidbits. There's absolutely no shortage. I mean, I have to write volumes of books just to squeeze all of this stuff in. Right. right. I mean, there's no end to the compelling wild stories that emanate out of Hollywood or other forms of life. I so mean, we may have one. multiple volumes. Well, we volume I mean, three, uh, four, maybe. I <laughs> Now, I saw a family therapist with my wife briefly, and he said, you're the only person egotistical enough to have two volumes for his. Actually, he didn't say that. He uh -huh. said, you're the only person I know who's got two volumes to his memoir. So um, the reason I did that is I had 600 pages, and that was yeah. too big for one book. And there right. were too many stories. So I broke it up in half and very happy with that that decision, too. Nice, nice. So, Was there a difference between uh, Van Damme, Death Warrant Van Damme, and Blackwater Van Damme? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. You know, you know, somebody once said, whatever Hollywood does to you, it makes you a greater representation of that. Or whatever you are when you come to Hollywood, you become more of that and everything that Jean-Claude was in Death Warrant he's become more and more of that with some trappings that are tragic 
in my humble opinion. Now, he has a good heart, right. and I know in there there's a good heart, and I know that he hope he finds it. By the way, I hope you understand, these people never give me any problems. They don't, right. nice. because John Claude respects me, and he doesn't give me any problems, and I love his son, and uh, mm. the, the truth is, what was good is magnified 29 years later, and what is bad is magnified 29 years later. So um, somebody once said, you know, at a certain age, and I think it's true of a woman too, and a person possesses the face they deserve. Well, they possess the, the personality and the character that they deserve too because of the path they're taking. Right. right. And um, what can I tell you? But I, I've had, I think, no, I, I think I ultimately you. he's a tragic figure. Right, and right. Uh, I hope he pulls it out. Right. I had. Uh, he has enduring distribution power. Right. He has enduring fascination people have for him. Uh, but he's his own worst enemy and just self-destructive. And that's basically what's going on there. Yeah, I had uh, Andrew Bierniarski on here, uh, I think, last a couple of months ago. And he mentioned that when he worked with him during Street Fighter... He said he was like a like uh you know he wasn't the nicest guy, and he had issues with him. But many 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 years later, kind of recently, he's had really no problems with Van Dam, and he's kind of calmed down since the Street Fighter era. Yeah, you know that's the danger too when you work with people on a movie. You don't know that's not the sum total of their lives, right? Um, you know, I just um, look. I have immense respect for the craft of acting and the craft of filmmaking. <clears throat> I have, I think the only legacy we have in life is whatever we carry with us into the hereafter. And, uh, and some of that has to do with kindness to others. And some of that has to do with how hard you work and how, how well you delivered the goods in whatever field that you're in. This is the challenge that I have with the current governor, governor, government of California. I don't think they're delivering the goods to the citizens of California. Um, I think they're, and that's that means a lot to me because as a writer, as a, uh, a script writer, as an advertising writer, as an actor, as a pe person, a father, um, and a film executive, um, a, pe a person who employs other people, how I do that is important to me. And you either possess that desire to deliver those goods and really do it well and to serve others beyond your own self-gratification, then you don't. And unfortunately, I think so many people are driven by, by motives that are less than um, self-serving and nobody's asking you to destroy yourself and in the business you have to know your own value you have to be able to establish boundaries and you have to be able to um, know that which I won't cross but one thing that was always paramount to me was whatever gets up on the screen has to be the best that we can deliver 
And that doesn't seem to be the drive for a lot of people. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I don't even understand it. Yeah. I really don't. Because you can't take the money with you. You can't right. take the, the cars with you. I mean, we deal with foreign governments. And the people are sometimes not the most visionary. And sometimes they're really greedy and they don't seem to ever think that the people down the street who are starving are going to come down with machetes one night and they're going to cut your head off and they're going to take the 19 cars you've got in your driveway. Right. So what are you thinking? Uh, But they become from a culture where uh, I'm going to get mine and Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop anybody who tries to take it. And, and look, there's a delicate balance here. You know, nobody can come and steal from me without a fight. But the truth is, I'm not trying to go through life just to get as many toys as I can, irrespective of taking care of other people and how I raise my children and what example I provide to the rest of the world. Yeah. So be a good human being. How's that? Yes, it's not that challenging. You yeah. take a guy, you take a guy like it's not easy sometimes, but you take a guy like Sir John Gilgood, very well mannered, tre- treated people with respect, and yet one of the greatest actors of the 20th century. You take a guy like Perry Ellis in the fashion business, an absolute gentleman and tremendous talent, left us far too early with the first scourge of AIDS. Um, brilliant talent, uh, but never said a crossword about anybody. I sometimes have problems because I have this journalist in me that wants to tell the truth. But I also, a spiritual person that never wants to say anything negative. Uh, For good or ill, the journalist usually shows up and kind of starts to deliver the truth. I had a podcast, the guy said, you really don't pull any punches in your book. And I said, well, somebody's got to tell the truth somewhere. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you know, by the way, I'm as ruthless to myself as I am to others. If I'm a bonehead, I say, I'm a bonehead. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. You know, I, and, and I have to do that sometimes every day. <laughs> but the, the, the truth is, I don't set out to do that. I set out right. to try and have as much grace as I possibly can. I certainly don't always succeed. Right. So, um, right. you know what? My wife is fond of saying, release yourself from the burden of judgment, and mm. you'll be much more free. And that's true. Yeah. But when you ask me the truth about a movie, I have to tell you the truth about the movie. <laughs> so I expect nothing less here. But, no, I get you. I totally understand. So how so how did you get the bug to start writing and to get in the, the film industry? What what got gotcha? you? Well, I was you seen. I, I, <laughs> well, that's volume one. You'll have to get into that. <laughs> um, Just give me a snippet. My parents always <laughs> rewarded education and linguistical ability, and they also. My mother was very vehement that I not watch a lot of television. I, I snuck it a lot, and I, I watched a lot of great foundational TV. 
uh, which were great stories and stuff. But largely, I read a book a day. And so my earliest heroes were literary ones, uh, either the, the characters in the books or the writers of the books themselves. So I went to New York after university, and all I wanted to do was be a, a writer. And so I became one for every magazine in New York and most of the ad agencies. And um, I had been writing early on. My parents rewarded me for coming up with interesting linguistical turns of phrase, if you want. You know, that camera is like the piercing eyes of uh, Isabella who lives down the street or something like that. Or in some, I'm just making up some. So they rewarded that kind of linguistical stuff. And my mother was incredibly devoted to education. And they, they saw that I got a really great education. And add to that, I read a book a day for years. So I became a writer. And then I was always an athlete. And so I was either writing and performing. And I became a journalist. So I was either writing copy and being in front of the camera uh, and giving a report. Um, so it was some combination of physical things and writing all the time. And then I got into acting, and that was, uh, I wrote plays. And then I, uh, you know, I'd get hired because the director knew I could polish the script or I could improvise lines when the script was a little thin. Um, and sometimes I'd get paid extra for that, and sometimes you just deliver that as part of the goods. Um, so that's how it happened. Right. I never intended to become an actor. It just uh, kind of happened. I worked on it really hard once I got to it, right. and I became fascinated by the process. Uh, it was destiny, in my opinion. Um, uh, it's The universe has a better idea of what you need in order to be happy and to achieve your greater purpose than you do sometimes in your own life. So... Uh, what initially seems like a denial or a bad event is actually sending you on a direction that you need to go. Right. Uh, so there you go. All right. Copy that. Well, let's go back in time a little bit here. Mm. Here you go, Tony. You know, this one is, you know, this one, Tony. Hey, all right. Toxic Avenger. Yep. Fun movie right there, man. Fun movie. So it looks like you had a blast right here. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. <laughs> Looks like he had a looks like he had a blast here, Patrick. How was it working in Toxic? Well, there I was actually stealing from one of the best movies ever, which is called <laughs> Clockwork Orange. Ah, and uh, classic, you know, with Stanley Kubrick, and um, so I borrowed uh, a little bit of the painted face from some of the the droogs uh, in Clockwork Orange. You know, they always say if you're going to steal, steal from the best, and That's so it. I was stealing. <laughs> Um, from Stanley Kubrick and Malcolm McDowell a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it was exuberant. I thought it was like a student film when I did it, though, because yeah. I'd done a lot of student films for NYU uh, where I was going for film and videotape, and, and I did a lot of student films. And then I got caught. I went up and saw, I think I saw an ad for this one. And I went up there, and they, they loved my performance so much, they doubled my salary from $75 to $150 for the week. And uh, I thought, God, this is – well, there's a chapter in that in, in the book about toxic because yeah. um, 
what can I tell you? I thought it was a mob financed movie because okay. a, a guy who looked like he was from God from Goodfellows would show up with two muscle every night, and his girlfriend was the blonde ingenue, and he was about ninety five, and she was beautiful and about twenty two. Right. And so <laughs> there was that. I got into trouble with that when I told her that I didn't think older. Younger girls should date older guys because it killed <laughs> it killed their um, their drive to become things themselves, and so the muscles showed up the next night and followed me into the men's room and said, "You're not to ever speak to Melissa or whatever her name is ever again." And I, so I zipped up and I said, "Sure, no problem, oh, man. <laughs> no problem." Wow. So, uh, All right. Anyway, so because um, they look like they mean business, they meant business, and they yeah. were towering over me. Right, right. But um, oh my goodness, you know Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hurst, the producer of that, are really unique. I don't think yeah. there's anybody like them in the film no. business. No. And uh, uh, I thought I was doing the worst movie in the history of civilization <laughs> because, uh, and then it, it went on and it made like I don't know thirty million dollars, yeah. whatever, and it's five people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I was, I'm more of, a, I just had mentioned Clockwork Orange or right. Saving Private Ryan or yeah. or whatever. But the world of film embraces so many tastes mm-hmm. and so many. And that movie seemed to capture some kind of generational deal, right? Um, which has been somewhat embraced by Quentin, uh, Quentin Tarantino, you know, the hyper violence mm-hmm. and the right. sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. um, mixture Winking. of, of yeah. violence and looking at the camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, I uh, the, here's what my life is like. Okay, four years after that movie, I opened the New York Times, and there's a glowing review of Toxic Avenger, and then on the left side of the New York Times page is a glowing review of the. PBS series I did, which was public broadcasting's largest production at the history at that time. And so that really pointed out to me the the breadth of the cinematic landscape. And they both got great reviews from the New York Times. They both got great reviews from Variety at the Cannes Film Festival. And so there you go. There's taste out there for everything. Yeah. Um, and one was really highbrow, and one was really lowbrow. Yeah. And so, I'm just blessed to have danced between them. <laughs> um, so but, you know, it's awesome though. But that's what's that's what's great about cinema, right? You got all these different flavors, all exactly. these different and, and you know, indeed, people. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of rich characters and people out there, yeah. and it takes all of them to make the world go round. Yeah. And uh, me and Tony, we're we kind of we have an open mind, and we like a little bit of different genres. So, so, but yeah, mm-hmm. we we can enjoy Toxic Avenger as well as Saving Private Ryan. But let's keep it rocking and rolling. Now, this is what's insane, at least for me. This is what's crazy for me. So, last week we revisited uh, Remo Williams here on the channel mm-hmm. last week, and I haven't seen it in years. I mean, it, it, since I was young, I haven't seen it in a long time, and we revisited it. And we had so much fun talking about it. Like, it was just a fun spy action comedy. And I said in there, I said, this is what I said. 
I said, you can go back and watch the video if you want, <laughs> but I said, every time this guy shows up in a movie, I smile just like this guy. <laughs> I said, every time Patrick shows up in a movie, I start smiling just like that. And, you know, we had a lot of fun revisiting the movie. We thought it was a very fun action spy comedy. And now the very next week, you are here, my friend. So it's just crazy how life works out. I never thought I'd get the chance to meet you. So I was just, I just wanted to let you know that it's just crazy. Like, is this real life? Is this happening right now? <laughs> but yeah, you know, that, that is the way it happens. Like yeah. we, my wife and I got invited to Taiwan a, about a month before we got hired to do an Asian action thriller. And, um, Two weeks before, I don't know if you know who Nicholas Rogue is. Did you ever see Don't Look Now or um, The Man yes. Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie? Yes, uh, yes. Or Walkabout. He's a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> visionary director. And I went and saw his movie, and two weeks later, I was in front of him uh, uh, getting hired for his film. So if you're, I think if you're on the right course, the universe provides all of that stuff in a really, really interesting way. Um, I, you're so sweet. To, uh, I had such a grand time on Remo. Um, that was the great Guy Hamilton, who your audience may not be aware of that much. or You're shaking your head like you know him, but, I mean, Guy, Hamilton, Guy Hamilton was yeah. the early Bond movies. Mm -hmm. You're talking about a titan of cinema. Uh, yeah. Married to Vanessa uh, Redgrave, the father of Jolie Richardson and Natasha Richardson. Um, uh, I, I had the great privilege. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I've got that confused. Guy Hamilton is not Tony Richardson, who was married to uh, to um, Vanessa Redgrave, but he's up there of the same school. Um, Guy Hamilton did, I believe he did Goldfinger, one of the early yes. Bond films. He did Goldfinger, yeah. And you know, the interesting thing about these guys is they don't audition me. Hmm. The, 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 like Spielberg didn't audition me. I mean, he saw me in something. Um, they know, they know. Guy Hamilton <laughs> talked to me for about 10 minutes yeah. and then hired me for Remo. Uh, Nicholas Rowe didn't I, I audition me. I went in prepared to audition and, uh, you know, he said, uh, he said, um, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm doing this play and I'm playing this actress's husband in the second stage. And I, and then I summoned all my courage up and I said, I'm looking forward to working with you. And he said, well, then you shall. We start tomorrow. Nice. I mean, that kind of thing, you know, just it's mind blowing. Or when Spielberg calls your agent up and says, we're hiring him for four, four months for minority report. And, you know, I mean, my agents started to cry. So, uh, you know, and agents aren't known for being real weepy people. But um, uh, I call those true Hollywood moments. Right. You know, when you get plucked out of something. And Stephen actually does that often. He picks people from something that he sees. And he had seen me in Dark Angel, and uh, which is James Cameron's TV mm -hmm. show. And um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think if you proceed confidently uh, and you're on the right path, that things like that happen. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, often really just are. when it seems really the worst, you know, the darkest time is right before the dawn. Right. And then all of a sudden you're into the brass ring. Yeah. That's yeah. what's interesting about this career. Yeah. But we uh, we wanted more. That's all I'm saying. We wanted a couple of more movies. <laughs> it would have been fun. Well, I did too. And, you know, it's really... Um, that one's an interesting business model because it it they had a hurricane the weekend of the premiere in New York. So it wiped out the premiere and nobody went to see it in the theaters. But it became the biggest uh, video in the history of, I, I forget, was it Warner Brothers, whatever studio it was, for years to come. So... Yeah. There's a perfect situation. It seems like a, a catastrophic event. Nobody came on opening weekend. But sure enough, lo and behold, the audience found it and made it a, a, a big cash cow for the studio that carried it for many, many years to come. I thought Joel Gray deserved an Academy Award nomination for the film, playing an Asian person. They probably wouldn't even let him do that now. Hmm. No. No, you know, because no. that's political, uh, cultural misappropriation uh, in today's climate. So, um, right. but he was really extraordinary playing a, an Asian man. The character was a lot of fun. And we talked about that in our review last week. We were just having a blast. Every, I think you're going to like my book because there's okay. ev everybody in there was, uh, was a lot of fun. Wilford Brimley, you know, we were <laughs> shooting in Mexico City and uh, it, which in itself is a, mind-blowing environment um and uh you know you travel you get in a cab and flame eaters they're plying their trade on the side of the sidewalk and your cab gets engulfed by flame from sword swallowers and flame eaters on both sides and it was a very vivid time for me and it was the first studio picture i ever did I mean, I thought, I thought my per diem made me a god down there. You know, you know what I mean by per diem? Uh, explain, just in case. Before per diem is watching. the money they give you for meals. And, uh, like, often it's like 100 bucks a day or something like that. Uh, and it, it means per day. So they would give us, like, $500 a week for meals. You know, we're staying in the hotel and something like that. But in Mexico City at that time, $500 was like, you're talking about renting a cab for the entire day, and it's like a dollar. Right, right. So imagine what $500 is in that time. And I was Man. a young guy, and that was a lot of money. And that wasn't even my salary. That was just the per diem. Right. I mean, Wilford Brimley went around everywhere he went throwing coins out to because you'd be followed by squads of kids and so everywhere he went he'd have a hundred kids following because he'd just be throwing coins everywhere <laughs> and I don't know if you know who Wilfred Brimley yes, is yes yeah um yeah. and Fred I, I Ward appreciate, I appreciate you thinking I'm really young Patrick <laughs> but I'm old man I'm up well, there <laughs> the, the, the problem we is we, we live in a culture where the challenge is we live yeah, yeah. in a culture where a generation used to be 20 years. A generation is like three years now. Yeah. And so 
I, I've met casting people who didn't know who Robert Mitchum was. Oh my goodness! Or and I'm I'm waiting for somebody in the movie business to tell me that they don't know who Marlon Brando is. You know, so it's going to happen. Yeah, it really puts the whole notion of fame and everything else into a different kind of a prism, because right. fame is very very short lived unless you're a particular kind of person. Right. I wonder if in a, a couple of decades. No one will know who Muhammad Ali is, you know, because people grow up and if it hasn't affected their whole lives and they're young, they're functioning within their life. And right. so, you know, um, I mean, they've done tests of people. They don't even know who our adversary was in World War II. Oh my you know, they think we fought the Russians or something like that. So. Um, I got you. No, I totally get you. You better be enjoying your life as you go through because what notion you might have of fame or legacy or something um, is only going to translate to those that you loved and was very closest to you on some level. Um, uh, It's an interesting phenomenon. Who, who remains, who, who remains and is timeless in our consciousness. I don't know that anybody is. Copy that. Copy that. So how many Westerns have you done already under your belt? Well, I had a great privilege of doing two with Tom Selleck, and I did one with Sam Elliott. And then I was involved in a television show called Guns of Paradise, uh, which I guest starred on a couple. But those are the Westerns. That's where, yeah. I don't know that I'd be allowed to do that job now because I was playing a half-breed. And they actually auditioned. They told me they auditioned 2,000 Indians for that job. And, oh, wow. And I booked the job because I had very pronounced cheekbones and a little uh, body and face makeup and a, and a, yeah. uh, uh, a headdress and a black yeah. wig. And Bob's your uncle. So um, I, uh, I had a grand time playing that. And this guy, you know, really good reviews. Like, I need to buy this one. But this is one that I've been wanting to watch for a long time. Not to be confused with Sam Raimi's Quick in the Dead. Right, with Sharon Stone and... and, uh, Gene You know, that that was... Quick in the Dead was the first film adaptation of a Louis L'Amour novel. And Louis L'Amour, for anybody who's a Western fan, is the Western writer. So... Uh, that was for HBO Films. It's a great, great privilege to have done that work. And then the, the things with Tom Selleck, uh, I think Last Stand at Saber River was written by Elmore Leonard. Well, you guys run that dial really well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> you but yeah, this looks thing. good too, man. Like I, I'm, I'm already psyched to see this one. Look at you right here. Yeah. It's about to go down, chat. It's about to go down. Look at that. Well, everybody who's in that movie is a significant actor. Um, the guy, you know, the guy who played the Mad King in uh, Braveheart? Yeah. Irish King? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in the movie. Nice. Yeah, this, and, this uh, is on the list. This on the Susie list. Amos, who, of course, became very famous from Titanic, and James Cameron's wife. She played Tom Selleck's wife. The young actress, I forget her name, from... Um, Water for Chocolate is in it. Um, uh, just a really good cast. Really good cast. Nice, nice. Let's keep it going here. So how was it working with uh, Sean Connery? I loved working with Sean Connery because, you know, you're talking about a man. Yeah. You're talking about a, 
uh, a star. I mean, this guy was every inch, every inch of an icon. And, uh, and uh, you know, when you're an actor and you're playing, you don't want to surrender your goals uh, when you're in a scene. And he's a man's man. So I was playing a bad, the bad guy or a bad guy. And so it was like putting two pit bulls in a small room. Yeah. So um, good shootout at the end. The good back and forth. It was pretty good. It's really exciting. Yeah, it was a really fun movie with Mark Harmon, who's one of the most gracious people on the planet. You know, um, first day of filming, he comes to my trailer and he says, "Come on, I'll take you to lunch." You know, and that's the kind of um, uh, friendly graciousness from people who are on high. That when you're a character actor or somebody who's not the lead, you're maybe playing the villain or something that you really appreciate. Really good guy. Nice. Tony, have you seen this one? Yeah, actually, first oh, time nice. I saw it was recently. A lot of people are buying this recently because of the Blu-ray release. A lot mm-hmm. of fans are checking it out. So, Patrick, how was it uh, filming on this one? Well, Kevin was, Kevin Tanney, the director, was wonderful. Um you know, I recently did the commentary for this movie with oh, Kevin nice. and the lady right there, Suzanne Savoy. And we got together at Kevin's house. And over the years, people have said, I really liked the seller. I really liked the seller. And I found out that here's what existed. Kevin delivered the film. And it's a really kind of a nice family horror film, almost Disney-esque. Uh, but really a nice piece. And then the producers somehow cut the whole thing and added some extraneous footage and all this other stuff. And in my opinion, and Kevin's opinion, made it less than. And so for all of these years, when people have come up and said, I really like the seller, they were actually talking about that version. So then when I'm at Kevin's place and we watched both versions for the commentary, um, I saw his original film. And imagine what that's like, you're a director, and then they take your film, butcher it, and then put that out as the version. Well, he had what was called an answer print, which is a particular print that exists from a film. He's the only one that had it. And with this Blu-ray, he was able to put both versions on the on the um the the blu-ray and so people will be able to judge for themselves which of the movies should be judged quote unquote the seller and so that was a unique situation and also it was was wonderful to talk to suzanne because suzanne of course is a woman and to share with her what her career has been like and uh, over the years so that was really really kind of cool i um uh i really love the the kevin version of the film right Um, right right. and i'm glad people are finally going to get a chance to see it nice nice is that is that is that so both versions are on both versions are on the film wow and you get commentary from suzanne myself and, and kevin on the two versions as we were going about. We're talking about different places, um, about the tif- different ex- experience of doing the film. Uh, really, it's a side thing, but 
I got my dog Molly on that set. And All right. you know who Gary Shandling is, right? Yeah. Gary's mom had a pet store in in Tucson, Arizona. And I wanted to get a dog. I was newly married and wanted to get a dog. So I was looking for a Boston Terrier. She said, I called Gary Shandling's mom. And I thought that was the coolest thing, to actually get a pet from Gary Shandling's mom. <laughs> so she goes, I don't have any uh, uh, Boston Terriers, but I got some Irish Terriers. I said, what's that? She huh. said, this, this, this British paratrooper got transferred from Britain over to here and brought this litter of uh, Irish Terriers. And so I said, that's cool. I'll go over and I look at it. And I looked at it. And they were the sweetest dogs. And I picked the the, the, the runts of the litter and uh, named her Molly. And she lived in the hotel with me on the film the whole time. And it was actually the ideal way to bond with a dog. And, um, you know, and, and so Molly turned out to be the greatest warrior dog I've ever known. I mean, she was unbelievable. If you look up the Kennel Club, uh, uh, the American Kennel Club has a book and it tells wonderful facts about every breed. Well, the Irish Terrier is, is uh, attributed to having saved thousands of British soldiers' lives in World War I because they used them to run messages behind enemy lines. And Molly was, she was absolutely fierce with other dogs and protective mm. with people, but yeah. you, the babies could ride on her back and a lot of dogs are like that but she's a really extraordinary dog and they call the irish terriers the d'artagnan of dogs oh, and i thought that was really cool All the right. american pitbull they say the american pitbull will let anyone into your apartment but it will not let them out ah. <laughs> so they've got some cool things so the american yeah. kennel club book nice 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 so yeah, i had right a grand here. time on the cellar copy that i'm gonna have to check i gotta check that out uh, he got here from chat. AJ Manson says, holy shit, it's the Sandman. He's excited. <laughs> got a lot of people here excited. We got a question here from Darren saying, hey, Patrick, love your work. What was it like to work with Pam Greer on Class of 1994? It's supposed to be 1999. Well, it was wonderful. You know, Pam is one of the great, great action icons of all time and probably the primary um, primary female action icon of her time. She's a real trailblazer and great beauty, and it was fantastic to work with her. This is such uh, a fun movie. Yeah, in that picture is John P. Ryan, who did probably every Jack Nicholson movie that ever made, really, and he was a fabulous actor. He came to real great fame with uh, Runaway Train, uh, and Eric Roberts, and I believe Re Rebecca De Mornier. And, uh, John Voight in that, too, Runaway Train? I can't remember that. It was a okay. Russian film, a Russian okay. director, but brilliant. Um, so I had a grand time with And there's a lot of stuff about Pam in my book. Nice, nice, nice. But, yeah, I love this poster. That is badass. That's what I'm talking about right there. Love that poster. It's just a you know, the, the truth is, I was the Terminator before the yeah. Terminator. Yeah, for, yeah. That's basically what it comes down to. And yeah. and uh, Seattle also is a fantastic place to work. Um, 
you know. Um, and there were some fun effects in here. Just a lot mm-hmm. of fun effects. Yeah, it's, it was great. <laughs> you know what's, inter- what's interesting? Have you seen the original? 1984 one class of 19 is it 1984 right tony yeah i I may have it's a long time ago though what's interesting is uh because i believe it's from the same director um what's interesting is a lot of fans prefer this one even over 1984 even though 1984 is supposed to be the classic a lot of fans prefer 1999 over 1984 yeah well it had Um, great great people i mean i've mentioned malcolm mcdowell he was in it. Stacy Keach. People yes. don't realize, but Stacy Keach at one time was viewed as the Sir Lawrence Olivier of American theater. And so you're talking, and his brother James is not in the movie, but they're a, a significant theatrical and cinematic family. And uh, Stacy is, you know, a master. Um, and has been in wonderful things. I'm trying to think of who else is in the movie. I um, I had a great time. It was yeah, just it's, fun. A, it's a fun movie. It's such yeah. a fun movie. Now, the movie. It is time. The movie that introduced you to me on film, and I just instantly was like, "This is my guy right here. I love this guy. <laughs> this guy is badass. This guy's amazing. This is how you do villains. This is the guy you get." Whether the material's amazing or it's not good, he's going to be the guy you remember in both projects. He's the he's going to be the guy that stands he's out. Kind, That's yeah. Right. Thank you. There's a bunch of guys out there. Death Warrant. Great. Yes. Job. Yeah. This is the movie. This is the movie where I was just like, "All right, the Sandman is is the shit. I am a fan. <laughs> this is like one of my favorite villains of all time in cinema." And I just what I just wanted to know what did you channel? to create this, this character? What was there any inspirations or you just, you just brought it out of you? You know, it's an interesting question because it sounds like, but the truth is that comes before Anthony Hopkins in silence of the lambs. And actually, so, um, which I'm proud of that actually that predates the Silence of the Lambs thing. Now, they're not the same character at all. Right. Anthony Hopkins is a towering actor. But the truth is I, I knew how to play that guy from the moment I, I got the deal. And I, I don't know what that says about me. But <laughs> hey. I, I, I knew how to play so him right from the get-go. And I knew how to play the camera with him. Uh, you know, and every when you do a movie, you really are trying to make every single frame of the movie be memorable. And so, again, I, I, I look at the the masters of that, and you look at a guy like Marlon Brando, and you see him in a western like uh, One Eyed Jacks, and he's got so much grace. And he's bringing stuff to the camera that has never really been seen in Westerns before. So um, those are the guys, he's the kind of guy, and Sir John Gilgood and Olivier. And and those are the guys that I really admired when I found my way to acting. And so, um, you know, William Holden and James Mason, a lot of them were British-connected. Um because I came from New York theater 
and that's at least half British. Um, you know, it, its origins are from England. And so, and, I, and one of my early mentors was a guy named John Tillinger, and he was an English director who I served as his assistant. And so I was even more conscious of this transatlantic passage from from England to America. And that that continues with people like Gary Oldman and, and, and Alan Rickman and those guys who have such brilliant wit at the same time, such uh, theatrical adeptness. Um, they, they move with grace and, 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 and uh, verbal dexterity. Um, now, the Sandman's not a verbally dexterous person, but he's... Um, I, I, you know, you, I read all the research about serial killers, all the books, all the research, and you do that, like if you're playing a military guy, you read all of the war books, all of the Vietnam books, all of that. But then the performance is something quite different. But somehow you in, embody that persona when you, you get into it. And so... And cinema villainy is very different from real villainy. Um, I always tried to, if I could arouse people at the same time I was scaring them, then I was succeeding. And um, Like this shot right here. There you go. I just combined both of what you said. <laughs> I love this shot. Well, so, I, uh, I mean, what is a cinema, a cinema villain's, if you if you write scripts and that you have the horror genre or the cinema villains keep getting more and more and more powerful and the lead character keeps being diminished and diminished and diminished until about the last third and then just when it seems like the hero is doomed then there's a reversal and right. so um uh the Sandman right. became ever more powerful. And and in every shot, you try to have some fun. Yeah. You know, whether I'm clubbing him with a wrench or whether <laughs> he's sticking <laughs> my head into a whirring propeller, yeah. you try to have some fun and come up with some originality and some right. innovation about the fights. You know, it's yeah. interesting. People might not know. The reason I'm wearing that guard's jacket in that shot that you – that's a guard's jacket. So – why is the and previously I hadn't done that? Well, what does that show you? He's killed a guard yeah. horribly <laughs> to get that jacket. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But also it allows me to put some pads on my elbows and my back as I'm careening around the cement. And, and, and I really began pretty much topless except for a little, um, uh, they call them, uh, you know, a white T-shirt, half T-shirt. Right. But the whole place, it's a San Pedro power plant. It's one of those places that was built in the 30s when FDR was trying to get us out of the uh, Depression. Um, and so they built these monumental power stations and the Hoover Dam and all these great things with labor that was unemployed and they needed to get people working. So they did these mass, massive infrastructure thing. And the San Pedro power plant where we filmed is exactly that. But it's all 
hard, cold stone and metal. And if yeah. you're fighting like Jean-Claude and I were for 18 hours a day, there's no place to put pads. There's right. no place to put anything. So you've got to figure out how can you protect yourself as you're doing this stuff as you're going along. Um, so hence the killing the guard and getting his jacket. Right, right. But I love the fight. It was just, it was like straight, it was like a street fight, you know, until, yeah, until Van Damme just... got flashy at the end, of course, because he's got a Van Damme. But up to that point, it was just a street fight. But when I was, when I was rewatching it with my wife, we were both, when you got kicked in the fire right here, yeah, we were both screaming, you know, well, she, she's never seen it before. I knew it was going to happen, but she was screaming, please let him jump back out of the fire. <laughs> And you jump back out of the fire. She was like, yes, yes. She was all like, keep it going. Yeah, it's just fun. It's just fun. I, I love I love this shot because it's, it's you can tell it's a trailer shot, right? Bad down yeah. and death warrant, right? And then right after this shot, he just gets hit in the head by a wrench that you threw at him. It's hilarious. Oh, I, I just, that's how, that's a villain. The villain's is like, no. <laughs> no, Van Damme. Stop it. Stop that. <laughs> I, uh. He he hit me a couple of times, and he was unrepentant about it. So when they gave me that wrench to club his middle section with it, yeah. um, you gave wrench, it the wrench was pretty heavy, even though it's yeah. made out of heavy-gauge rubber. And right. so I said, okay, Jean-Claude, you're going to be unrepentant for, <laughs> for hitting me a couple of yeah. times. Well, yeah, I'm going to yeah. be unrepentant. <laughs> And not pull my wrench shots to your midsection. <laughs> you know what? He never said a word. All right. But I thumped him in the middle yeah, section. You had, to get, you had to give it back. You know, I, you, like that. You I hit like that. And you, you hit and you pull away. Right. You know, right. Boom. But right. I just yeah. wound up and yeah. followed right through. Snuck one um, in. That's so. fun. That's fun. You got to. You had to give it back to him. That's, that's a lot of fun. Speaking of, you know, we're keeping the martial arts and the action going here. A lot of fans, when this got released on uh, Blu-ray from MVD Rewind, they were very happy uh, that this came out. And it's from the director of Best of the Best 1 and 2. I'm a fan of those movies as well. Uh, how was it working on this one and uh, getting a chance to fight Billy Blanks? Well, you know, I just told you on Borrowed Time 3, I'm going to be reunited with him, which is going to be great because I love Billy. Um, he's a great martial arts figure. What is he? Eight-time world karate champion. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, and he, the inventor of Taibo, so he's mm -hmm. had a significant input input on a lot of people's lives. Um, Was he easier? You to know, I, I remember this movie because it was another example for Patrick to be completely appalling, because with all of the racial stuff inherent in a right. white man beating up a black man. I took off my belt and whipped him. Uh -huh. So it was like symbolic of like right. the slave overseer. Yeah. Hey, playing the character. Yeah. Yeah, I was playing the character. Yeah. And 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 the thing is in movies, people really appreciate that. And not the least is uh people of color appreciate it. There yeah. I've had people of color come up and go, You're the best white Aryan supremacist <laughs> I've ever seen. And they, they actually like it, and they, they love it. I did another movie uh, with Treat Williams where I, I had to give a white Aryan supremacist speech. And so I took Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech and reversed everything. Right, and said, right. I had a nightmare. 
and stuff like this. And I've seen the nightmare of multiculturalism. Right. And, and the white studio executives get freaked out by stuff like that. Yeah. But the people of color audience love yeah. it. And they're yeah. like, they get what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that you're playing and that you're doing this thing for an artistic purpose to right. be appalling and funny. So right. um, whipping Billy Blanks yeah. was one of the, I remember yeah. doing that. And, it's called um, The Villain You Love to Hate. That's what you call it. Exactly. You know. So I. How uh, was that? How was that fight? Uh, how was it to, in terms of? Uh, was it pretty brutal, or he or he he knew his stuff, and you didn't really get hurt in this one. You know, um, the truth is, by the time we did this movie, it was a period, and I'm not sure sure we've ever gotten out of that period, where production schedules were becoming so compressed, and the budgets so compressed. We did all of the fights in that movie in one day. Oh, no way. Think about oh, that. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Patrick, the whole movie was, my whole time in the movie is five days. And um, we shot that on a Friday and all of those fights. And look, like anything in life, you get faster and faster and better. At Uncommon Dialogue Films, we put together strategic materials really swiftly and really well now because we've been doing it for a while and we know the essentials, how to get to it. Well, what are the essentials to a fight? Also, your mind becomes so attuned. It's like dance. My uh, a wife, Heidi, was a dancer in New York and Vegas and uh, all over the country uh, for different uh, shows. And you learn those steps really fast. And that's the mark of, of a professional. And so Billy and I would rehearse and do the thing really quickly. And then uh, one take rehearsal and then boom, do the shots. So, no, I don't remember it being uh, difficult at all. We did it all mostly in an afternoon. Man, and, that's, and then that's nuts. That's I was doing wild. another job in Australia. Yeah. So they took me to a nearby motel. I showered. They threw me in a plane. I flew from uh, from Arizona to LAX, saw my kids for an hour at the airport, flew to Hawaii, then flew to Sydney, Australia, then flew to Bisbon, then flew took a, 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 a car from there two hours to the studio, 24 hours of, uh, of traveling, and I was into another job. And so... Right. You know, you do what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's that's pretty impressive to do all the fights in one day. That's that's amazing. By then, we were pretty fast, and we still, you know, we're still pretty fast. You do that. You know, I get hired. People think uh, I get hired a lot of jobs. The director will call me the night, 11 o'clock the night before, and they'll wire me the lines, and I put my own costume together, and I have an extensive closet. And I arrive at the set, play the character, and then you're gone. Right. And and so that's really what it means to to do. I talk about in the book, like Daniel Day-Lewis, you know. Daniel Day-Lewis does one movie a year, but some of us exist in 40 jobs a year. Right. right. You know, um, yeah. and, and to me, uh, they're both working actors, but there's totally different 
realms of activity. You know, I live in a world where it says you're a Russian in 20 minutes, then you're a Russian in 20 minutes. <laughs> right, right. You know, you're going online. How do I speak like a, a Serbian mass killer? And you go in and do it. Um, <laughs> right. And then you hire a vocal coach after you get the job and you polish it so that it's perfect as much as you can get it before you do the job. So, right. There I'll you go. That. You got AJ Mason saying the showdown was a good movie right here. He's a fan. You got a uh, pop culture vegan saying, Patrick, I wish you luck in your bid for governor. Thank you. you. Thank All you. Right. We're uh, really happy because um, we, it appears we've become the vision division of the Newsom regime. Every time we come out with a good idea, five days later, he'll throw some money at it. So I'm really proud of the fact that we're already having a positive effect on California. Um, so he's following our candidate statements. And, and, and uh, the question becomes for people of California, who do you want as governor? Somebody who starts working when their job is threatened, or do you want somebody who's going to start working right from the beginning with some skill and vision and tribe? Right. Copy that. Spoken like a true politician. Patrick. There you go. <laughs> but the truth is, that's the case. Uh, California is not in a great shape in a lot of areas. And the bottom line is, it's unacceptable. The homelessness situation, the taxes situation, businesses fleeing the state. All the film production fleeing the state. This doesn't have to happen. Right. right. So uh, we know what to do to, to correct that. Yeah. Um, and Copy we that. put it out and Newsom co-ops it. And that's a time-honored uh, political chicanery. But it's okay. It's, it's it. making it's okay. the state a better place. And isn't that the whole point? That's to make the, the state a better place for our kids and that's for the right. people who live here. Tony Tiger says, vision division, you should trademark it. <laughs> it's the truth. That's what we are. You know, we don't have anybody in our, our thing that's coming up with any vision or drive. Let's hire Uncommon Dialogue Films. They can come up with a vision. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're laughing very cynically, but in fact, that's what's occurring. We called for hum uh, preferential water rates for those who do humane animal food production, cattle and, and, and hogs and chickens. Well, the next couple of days, he announces he's going to have a humane hog uh, initiative. So it's like, hey, what's Patrick Kilpatrick's candidacy doing today? Let's, <laughs> let's figure it out. Maybe we can have a good idea for the campaign. Copy that. No, I was chuckling over here at uh, First Powers Comment. He says, Patrick was in Best of the Best 2, and I enjoyed him as a villain more than Ralph Moeller. Look at that. He liked you more than the actual main, 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 main villains. All well, I love Ralph. Ralph yeah. is one of the most fun guys on the planet. Yeah. If you ever get the chance, go to lunch with Ralph. Okay. Because you're talking about one of the best guys uh, around. I love Ralph. And he, I love him because... Uh, you know, I, when I met Rolf, his arm was like a planet. You know, literally. I mean, honestly, his arm was as big as my torso. Yeah. I and I, I'd come up to him and I'd go like, uh, he doesn't know me from Adam. And I'd go, where do you get Speedo briefs? You know, these vague sort of homoerotic references or something. Uh -huh. and, 
and he would laugh and he would get it. And you got to love somebody who gets the jokes. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. he's a, he's a wonder. He, I, I, whenever I talk to Rolf, he tells me he's always doing something really exciting. Like I go, Hey Ralph, how are you? And he'll go, Patrick, I'm at, I'm at the German Autobahn convention and I'm being given such and such an award and I'm doing this <laughs> like, Oh, good. Well, that's great. He's a wonderful guy to have lunch with. Nice, nice. I was. Uh, it was just cool talking to him on uh, Instagram. Philip Ree is great too from yeah, that movie. Yeah. Um, Philip is such a gracious man. Yeah, I met him and his brother Simon at a convention. Awesome, Simon's young. awesome. Yeah, they're they're legit too. They're legit. I, I wish Philip did more. See, that's a, I, I know. Uh, you know, Philip went to producing. And yet you're talking about a handsome guy who should have done more acting. But I think the reason is people don't realize how rigorous the audition process is and how brutalizing and how, um, how it's such a crucible for great creation, but it's also a crucible to crush you. And so some guys, and I think Phillip's one of them, they go, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm just going to produce movies because they can. Patrick, who's probably, uh, you know, I, I just, I always thought this is where the creation of action uh, of acting lies in the audition process. After a point you go, look, is it really appropriate for a guy who's done 200 films and television shows to audition for a part? But you'll go to an audition, and there are guys who have won Academy Awards, and there are guys who have won Emmys. So you can't look at the business with a kind of um, egoism. You have to. It's like guys, some guys, they do a soap. They'll do a soap for 10 years. They're making $300,000 an episode. $300, an episode. They got Porsches and houses in the Hamptons and everything else. They finish the soap. They can't audition again. They can't do it because they think it's beneath them. But you got to let that job go and throw yourself right back into the competitive mix because all my children's over. You you take your Porsches, you take your house in the Hamptons, but it doesn't mean you're going to book that job if you don't go in and deliver the goods all brand new again. So right. um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. it would have been nice to see him do more stuff, though, because he's really talented. You still see his brother show up and doing stunt work, and you still see yeah, Simon probably, pop up and things. He's probably on the set, and they go, okay, let's Simon do it, yeah. uh, because he's stunt coordinating. And, right, right. and why not? Alan Graff, yeah. one of the great stunt coordinators of all time, is always appearing in movies, because... Uh, I, like Alan Graff was the stunt coordinator for Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis, and he did Any Given Sunday. He's the probably the greatest gun guy out there and the greatest, certainly the greatest football guy because he was on the Oakland Raiders himself as a uh, one of the NFL teams. And so he really knows football and he really knows guns because I think Last Man Standing, some of the best gun stuff oh, ever filmed. Phenomenal. And, and so... But he's always appearing because they'll go, hey, Alan, come in, come in and play this guy. You know, so I think Simon's doing the same thing. Probably. Uh, I love those guys. I really, I send my love and respect. Here's the thing about like you take a guy like Philip. 
uh, I'm supposed to interrogate him in the movie. And I hit him accidentally twice. He spits out the blood. And by the way, for me, that's a complete breakdown in craft. That's a complete, and I, I almost started crying. I was so upset that I hit another actor. And he goes, don't mention it. And he just goes on. You know, he's, he's a warrior. And the same thing when it happens to me, I, I, I think. I was doing NCIS, and the lead actress is supposed to take my character and bring me and put me into a car. Well, they're supposed to, the FBI is shooting at the car, and so they've wired all the windshield and the uh, passenger side door window with explosives to explode just before we come around the camera, uh, corner. Right. Well, the, t- the timing was off, so we come around the corner, and we're about a foot away from the window, and they set the charge. So the whole windows explode right into our faces um, and, and the actress's faces. Well, rightly so, the actress was completely, completely beside herself with terror and fear and right, anger yeah. because the glass had just been exploded right into her face. Well, I've got little blood things coming down all over my face. And I'm like, well, it's just standard operating procedure in the low budget film world or the action film yeah. world. Yeah. You know, these things happen and you just got to count yourself lucky. You didn't lose an eye and right. just go on with the rest of it. I didn't even say anything because I'm so used to, you know, right. Oh, you got to jump out of this building. You're talking about the seller. <clears throat> it's me and a kid who's couldn't have been more than 11 and my wife, and they say, we want you to run out of this building, and then we're going to blow up the building. And you have, oh to, you have to throw yourself onto the driveway. And it's hard asphalt. So I turn to the guy, and I go, do you have pads? And it's not even a stunt coordinator. It's a PA who's never worked on a movie before. And he goes, pads? You know, so... So, so what did we do? We ran out of the building. They blew it up. And me, an 11-year-old kid, and uh, and the Suzanne Savoy flung ourselves onto the asphalt. Oh, my goodness. And I went out and bought myself skateboarder pads from that moment on and took it on to every set I ever had because – you got to pad up and you got to take care of yourself. Right. And the other thing is, it's just things happen. Yeah. It's yeah. not how, it's not that it happens. It's how you react to it. You have right. to react to it with some grace. And Philip, uh, Philip Ree and Simon Ree bring grace to almost everything they do. Yeah. So my hat is off to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're phenomenal. But that's crazy about the seller. That is insane. Uh, some more shout-outs here. Alan enjoyed you in Scanner Cop 2. We have um, right here. Hold on a second. I had another one. Salvatore enjoyed you in Under Siege 2. Enjoyed mm-hmm. you a lot. The, the Patrick Kilpatrick fans are showing up <laughs> right here. Robert says, love Mr. Patrick in the X-Files episode. Sure. I love you, too. What was it like working on the X-Files, he says. Well, I th- uh, no kidding. I think I hold the 
we were talking about auditioning a second ago. I think I hold the world's record for auditioning for X-Files. 26 times I auditioned to be on that show. 26 times on six different occasions, I called my agent and said, don't ever send me back to that place ever again. Because, you know, every week they have a new director for each different episode. And they always want to. And so you'd go in and audition. And sometimes the casting people have you audition because it makes them look good, even if you're not even right for the part, because they brought in uh, a good trained bear who can actually uh, deliver a good performance for them. So I kept going in there. Finally, Chris Carter, the creator of the show, I ran into him at the Golden Globes. And I went up to him and I said, Chris, why aren't I working with you? I mean, and he said, well, I've been trying to get you on the show for years. Um, you were runner up for the cigarette man and runner up for the bounty hunter. And, uh, I, and I, I understood they're trying to get you on, but it's just the exact right thing. And so you have to let your ego stay at the door and keep arriving and showing up. And eventually I got on that show. And I had a wonderful time. I call him the romantic serial killer challenged person. And uh, I had a wonderful time being on it. And probably made, I don't know, a lot of money signing autographs and pictures of me being on, on X-Files. That's um, awesome. And so it was great to be on it. Yeah. A lot of the intricacies of the show, like I was trying to have this pained look on my face uh, that was filled with um, loss and pain and everything with every shot. So I would hit my hand against a chrome bumper before every take. So um, whether these things are necessary or not, I, you know, it worked for me at that particular time, yeah. you know, because it would make my eyes water and have a sense of loss in the thing. Uh, right. And my father had passed away and I was thinking about all of that stuff. So there's your synergy again. And so, um, yeah, I enjoyed the job. Nice. So you worked with two more other martial art actors, Jeff Wincott in Open Fire and yeah. Gary, Gary Daniels in Riot. Uh, how was it working with both of those guys? <clears throat> well, all I remember about Gary is he was very nice and he's from Canada. I don't remember much about him. Jeff Wincott and I... We're in the same Juilliard acting class. Uh, there's a, the graduate acting company of Juilliard, which is a great theatrical university in New York, perhaps the greatest in the world, along with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Um, but uh, <clears throat> Jeff and I were both in the acting company, acting class that was artistic director was Michael Kahn. So I knew Jeff for a long time. And you're talking about a, a brilliant, funny guy um, and very talented and uh, very athletic. So he was he was really, really, that was fun to work with him about. Um, uh, it looks like you guys had a really good fight, too, at the end. I saw highlights of it, and I was like, I got to check this movie out. Yeah, we did. Uh, I'm here again, I, I you know. Jeff ran into some problems with substance abuse. Oh, I and didn't it know. Kind of waylaid his career for a while, yeah. and then he, he, as far as I know, he's back and he overcame all of that and stuff oh, like all right. that. 
I mean, that stuff took out a lot of people. Um, and it's, it's done. I always counsel young people to stay away from stuff like that. And it can really interrupt your flow. Um, and it can, it's going to be destructive for you and it's going to be diminishing. And so that's, uh, really something that has crashed a lot of people's careers. Um, and, uh, because you're just kind of out of control until you get that in hand, whatever it is, anything in excess beyond a certain, my self-destructive influence, you know, as an athlete, I know what it feels like to feel good and your body is in tune with things. And so that's always helped me. Um, when I was younger and everybody tried different things like that, if I hadn't had athleticism and if I hadn't had organic food and pure food and those kind of things and massage and chiropractic, which I learned from breaking my back when I was 17 years old in a car accident, um, I, I learned those healing modalities. So again, that's what I mean by negative events. The negative event of that, broken back, which didn't allow me to play sports anymore for almost 10 years. But look what happened in the interim. I became a writer. I learned about massage and chiropractic and acupuncture. And so when I got my athlete's body back, I had the mind of a writer and the body of an athlete with the ability to put myself back together. And so when I fight Jean-Claude 18 hours a day, I could put myself back together really quickly, which you have to do in order to keep acting very pristine and for people not to get stiff so that somebody gets hurt. That's when somebody gets hurt when people get stiff and they're not moving fluidly and flexibly. So um, the universe gave me the tools that I needed out of the negative event of the broken back. So um, I also learned about very balanced exercise so I could stay fit. Uh, Like now I do a lot of swimming because Mm. it's without impact, you know, and you can really do a martial art routine, a full, you know, UFC routine and no impact while you're in the water and you're getting the aerobics, but you're not getting that banging that can be really devastating to your body. Is so, stretching is stretching really that important? Absolutely. Okay. It's not only it's absolutely vital. What it is, it's flexibility as you get older. Now you, I do a little light weights too because mm. they know that that helps in uh, bone retention and it's very cardio in itself. But high reps, low weights, um, flexibility—whether you're doing it from dancing. Or stuff for me, I find water is really, whether it's in the ocean or whether it's in a pool. And I'm very lucky. I live in a building that's got a deep water pool in it, um, and I'm in it all the time. And it, it now I can adapt. I've got an elliptical bike. Again, not much impact. Right. You know, you're minimizing the impact. I see people running on the streets. Great for them. They better have really good cushioning shoes, Nike Air and stuff like that, or they're going to – I was raised raising horses. We would never run a horse on an asphalt road, never. 
even with rubber shoes, which they put on horses, because that's going to destroy their their joints. Um, so uh, tennis players, you know, in the beginning, they used to play tennis on asphalt. All those guys have had to get hip replacements because of that. Lawn tennis, you're on a softer surface or the surfaces they have now, which are better for your body than the ones from decades ago. Um, you know, everybody has to design their own limits. Right, um, right. I was very lucky that early on I had a cataclysmic event. And so that put a lot of on me and I had to learn to overcome that. If you don't overcome those things, it's reflected in your acting work. Um, uh, that sort of constriction, if you would. It's kind of counterintuitive because acting, the greatest acting, and I think the greatest living comes when you're really, really relaxed. And let's suppose somebody's doing something that's really winds you up. It's really annoying. Right. Well, that can be funny if you explode, but that's probably not the most effective way of dealing with the situation. Certainly not in my life. You know, uh, somebody once said, if you're not in control of your emotion, then you really aren't, you aren't really functioning at your highest level. Rarely are things that are done out of explosiveness and emotional stuff really the right, correct path. Um, and so at least that, I don't, I don't have all the answers, but yeah. that's what I, I, I feel. No, that's really good advice. And uh, Heather Love says here, you look amazing. <laughs> that's what she says. <laughs> I've only just begun. That's it. That's it. I like that. I like that. I, I knew that I had to have this package for yeah. a long, long time to achieve whatever it was that I wanted to achieve. And you're always trying to go to a higher, you know, when you first start out acting, oh, I just want to be a working actor. Well, after five years of that, you want to be a working actor only in really good projects. And then after that, you want to write and create your own project. And after that, you know, who knows what happened. And then right, right. for me, you know, the public service and running for governor is a natural outcome of that. Because it's really the same process. You create a vision for a film. You execute it, screenwrite it, cast it, do all of that. And then you carry it to the audience. Um, just like you carry an election to the electorate. Um this is a very special election because it's very short, very focused. So Right, right. Copy that. Awesome, awesome. How was it, really quickly, how was it like uh, working with Chuck Norris and Samuel Hung? <laughs> you know my career at this point better than I. I uh, <laughs> Actually, I was talking about Samuel Hung the other day, and I'm in, invariably looking up at what are people up to now, and where are they, and and. That job with Sam O was with Arsenio Hall. And um, yeah, martial law, yeah. Remember, we were talking about actors not surrendering their goals in a scene. Well, I was doing a scene where I'm kind of the head gangster and I'm talking to Arsenio Hall, and he's getting really cheeky with me. By that, I mean he's being a real wise guy okay. in the scene. Okay. And I'm supposed to be the boss bad guy. Right. So in the middle of the scene, I reached around and slapped him as hard as I could. Well, the whole set went completely quiet wow. because he, here was an actor who had just slapped the star of the show. <laughs> but Arsenio got it. Right. 
he got it. He knew what I was doing, that he was jerking me off in the scene, and my character couldn't let him get away with jerking me off. So he rolled it's, with it. All right. He totally rolled with it, and he was totally a champ with it. And that's what the scenes required. Um, so Samo, Samo, you know, I, as I was reaching, uh, researching Samo recently, I had no idea what a huge force he is yeah. in martial arts creation. Yeah. That he is literally like the George Washington of, <laughs> of Hong Kong and Taiwan filmmaking. You know, yeah. I mean, the guy is astounding, which is another example that if, if we really ought to look deeper into the people that we're talking to, because they may have this background that is not apparent on the surface. And uh, I knew he was a very popular guy, and I knew he was a very funny guy, but uh, bad on me that I didn't do the research on him while I was on the show, um, because the guy is an astounding presence, uh, and I'm glad to hear he survived a heart attack, and he's doing well, and he's back to work. In fact, I think he had a heart attack, and he went back to work three days later, or Figures. two days later. You're talking uh, about a complete yeah. martial arts mentor yeah. to huge numbers numbers of people i'm not and surprised so that was really <laughs> fabulous to watch um and what was the other job you asked me about uh chuck norris when you were on walker oh well he's Texas. a great great champion there are little stories about these guys that really about these shows um i did a, a show called honolulu crew and this can show you Honolulu Crew was um, uh, a really, I can't remember the lead, but a super handsome Asian guy and Michael Rooker. And we went to Hawaii to film it. Honolulu Crew stands for Honolulu Crime Reduction Unit. Unit. Uh, Lori Petty was in it. Really great show. And they spent a lot of money on this show. We did John Woo-esque fights. Nice. And everything. All of which are great. Yeah. The show didn't even get picked up. Oh. And the same year, the most popular show, the People's Choice Award, went to Sam Hung and Martial Law. And so I don't know if there's a lesson there, except that that was fairly lowbrow. And it was just simple formula stuff that had a couple of really gifted guys on it. But here is there's there's that that's the number one show. And then there's this show that had this incredible artistry and expense uh, thrown at it. And great actors, Michael Rooker and Laurie oh, Petty and, and all of this oh stuff. My goodness. And to this day, it's one of the, in my mind, one of the finest didn't even get picked up. Oh. So it's, there's a certain amount of, <clears throat> luck of the draw with some of these things. Um, right, right. So um, Chuck Norris, fantastic guy. <clears throat> um, That's it. Everywhere we everywhere we would go okay. in, in Texas, a crowd would gather because he's immensely popular yeah, and immensely shocked. popular. Yeah, in Texas, and while we're filming. Chuck's wife is selling T-shirts to the crowd that assembles. So 
and his son is the stunt coordinator on the show, Eric. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they're working it. <laughs> they're, they're cleaning up right, right, every right, step right. of the way. And right. that was fantastic. Right. The other thing is, as playing a villain against Chuck, and I get it. If you were the villain, you never got to hit him back. If you look back on the show, I never was allowed to hit back. It's not like Jean-Claude and I, where we're, he takes yeah, a blow and I take a blow. Yeah, he takes yeah. a blow. Chuck was like, nobody's going to get to hit me on this show. And so there he is. <laughs> and I love him. So, so it's just Chuck kicks you and then kicks you into a window, but you don't get to take any swings at Chuck. The other thing is my girlfriend at the time is playing my sister on the show. Okay. And there was an ice storm and they shut down uh, Dallas Fort Worth, just shut it down. And so we were stuck in a hotel for 11 days and my girlfriend and I had a fantastic time and we made a lot of money because the show had to shut down. But so it was just like an extended vacation and yeah, um, because of the ice storm. So there you go. Wow. Gotta love the Chuck. Tony, have you seen this? I one? do, and he's a great American and a great parrot and patriot. And I have love you, him. Nice. Have you seen this one, Tony? Scanner Cop too? Yep. Just recently, uh thanks to Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, there's a lot a lot of people are buying this. People that own this movie, again, I'm not I'm not surprised, but people that own the movie <laughs> have been telling me the real reason to watch it is of course for this guy in it. No, you're just being kind. He kills it. He kills it. Now, all I, I saw a clip here, and I was just like, this right here. Boom! Sorry, spoilers, everyone. <laughs> but uh, that is phenomenal. That's like just as good as a head explosion in scanners. That's pretty impressive in terms of practical effects. So, Sam, you, you guys know Samurai. You know, you know I love the practical effects, so... I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to cop me a copy of Scanner Cop too. But yeah, it looks like it looks like fun. Definitely, it was, like it was a lot of fun. Um, Pierre David, who was the producer of the show, really interesting character. Um, I think he's back in Canada for many years shooting films up there because of the incentive program up there. But um, Pierre is such an interesting character, and all of this is in my book too. But he, you could machine gun a woman to, in half, but you couldn't kiss her. <laughs> so, you know, like a lot of movies, because I told him, Christine Hodge, the lead actress and I, who briefly dated for a while, um, and, and but I said, hey, remember I told you that as a villain, I like to arouse people and to, to turn them on a little while you're... Um, uh, you're shooting. So uh, there is an element of seduction to cinema villains. And so I said, how about while I'm mesmerizing Christine, I lean in and kiss her. And he wouldn't allow me to do that, but I was allowed to explode them in my head. So I don't know what pathology is behind all of that, but uh, that was Pierre. But Pierre doubled my quote for the movie. So I've always been extremely grateful for him doing, the, doing that. The other thing is, if you know, I, we, to be scanners, you pulse out the veins in your head. And 
I, I, I was able to do that, and I did it in that movie, and I did it in Sleepwalkers with uh, Naomi Watts. And a couple of times, both Danny Quinn and I would pass out from doing that. Oh, my goodness. You, you hold your breath, and you're like, yeah. you know, I'm not yeah. even going to do it because right, I'll right. pass out. Yeah, but occasionally, we would pass out, and right. people would just step over us on the crew. They just figured it was part of the process and they would just go on while we're passed out in the middle of the scene. So that was kind of a funny deal. Oh my on the and um, uh, I, I had a grand time on the show. And again, the, the naughty bits, you're going to have to go to my book. That's it. Go to, mm-hmm. go to his book chat. Everybody watching, get that book. We're going to get that There's book. In Dying for Living bit. volume one is on Barnes and Nobles and, uh, uh, Amazon in all forms, including Audible, which I did myself. Uh, nice. Because nice. I wasn't about to pay a voiceover person to be my right. voice. Right. So, um, yeah. And by the way, that's a rigorous process. Do you ever? Did you ever record for a book? No, I have not. I have not. You're talking about six to ten hours. I mean, six days, ten hours a day, because you're you're five hundred dollars an hour uh, for the studio for the publisher. Right. Or whoever's hiring for that, so you're moving, and you at the same time it's got to be emotive and uh, have a rhythm and everything else. And so that was uh, it was rigorous. It's fun, man. Yeah. So chat. I put the link in the description below. So we're all of all of Patrick's information, his website where you can get the book, all that good. And by stuff. the way, the book is 100 percent five star reviews. So you and if if you want an autograph copy, you go to patrickkilpatrick.com. Brad Pitt calls these shameless moments of self-promotion, um, <laughs> but I'm proud. I'm proud of the book. Yeah, um, there's nothing wrong uh, with it. I'm proud of the book because it, it achieved uh, the goals that I really wanted, which was sort of an uh, homage to some literary masters and some information about acting and some behind-the-scenes stuff and some scandalous stuff and really the inside scoop on what goes on on sets and things like that and. Yeah, and, I, gotta, uh, I have to buy this. I so, have to buy this book. Uh, but so we talked about all the many martial artists you've worked with already. You know, Dolph Lundgren, Van Damme, Billy Blanks, Jeff Wincock, Gary Daniels, Chuck Norris, Sam Hung. Now, how was it working with Seagal? Or majority of that is in the book. We got to get the book. <laughs> <laughs> it is in the book. Okay. Um, but... I'll give you some of the things. First of all, fantastic job. You know, we were talking about that Hollywood ring. Yeah. I was going through a divorce at the time, and I was down to, i not even down to my last $50. I was under the, I was in the negative quadrant because I had borrowed $5,000, and I was down to $50 of the borrowed $5,000. Oh, wow. And so they called me. And I had auditioned for Jeff Murphy, the director, who's a great, great talent. And what's great about Under Siege 2 is because of Jeff, in my opinion. And my agent calls me and says, they're going to hire you for this movie, Under Siege 2, and they're only going to pay you X amount of dollars. And it was a huge amount of money relative to a guy who was down to his last $50 of a $5,000 borrowed thing. So 12 hours later, I was in the highest 
penthouse of the Beaver Creek Hotel in the fall in Vail, Colorado, in with a, a, a condo that had a grand piano, five bedrooms and five fireplaces, a quarter wood around the balcony, getting paid tens of thousands of dollars per week in the most glorious place of Colorado with every stunt guy in Hollywood. And they're the most irreverent, wonderful people to work with and, and doing this huge movie. And so, uh, again, sometimes that's what this business is like. You know, you're, you're, you're down and out and are almost to the bottom and then boom, you're right back on top. So I never count anybody out. I never count anybody out, even if they're making a fool of themselves. And this business actually has a place, just like American society has a place, for great redemption and, and comebacks. And so I had this movie. I mean, literally, part of it, I'm, I'm, I'm watching my words because my wife is watching this um, <laughs> this interview. And she's, she knows everything about my books because right. she edits them. Right. Um, but the bottom line is you could get four college, uh, Colorado, University of Colorado co-eds to, to date you if you were the garbage person on this movie. Uh, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with being the garbage person. Right. There's not. It's just that, you know, you're a movie star in a place outside of Hollywood and the power of movies outside of Hollywood is huge. Right. And just like the power of moviedom in a place outside the country, outside of Hollywood is significant, having taken productions into those places um, and taken over towns to shoot films. Um, so it was a glorious job. I had a really good time. And, uh, You're a badass in it. I enjoyed it. As well, usual. you know, Peter Green, who was at the apex for him right then, and a, a good actor from Pulp Fiction and uh, Usual Suspects, and uh, Eric Bogosian, very literate, uh, monologuist and uh, New York actor, Everett McGill right there in the picture, really great actor out of Arizona. And, and then you asked how it was, you don't really act with Stephen. Steven just kind of shows up and does his thing. And then That's it. at that time got on his helicopter and took off. But there's lots of things about the movie. You're talking about months and months and months, 14 weeks, uh, nine weeks in Colorado and, and five weeks in the Warner brothers studios. And, uh, and just a grand time. I mean, yeah. Little things like, uh, Stephen and I had a good relationship in the sense that uh, I don't I, I read the book. <laughs> we'll read the book. We'll read the book. Read the book. <laughs> um, you know, but a lot of fans consider this because they they say that the first five Seagal films are his best. But a lot of fans, Seagal fans, are actually including. They're trying to include. Under Siege 2, let's make it the, 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 the let's do six Seagal's best six because there's a lot of fans for Under Siege 2. I enjoy Under Siege 2, I, I had a lot of fun with it. Well, it's a good action again, again, you know, if you look at Under Siege 2 now, 
and it's kind of common practice now. But if you look back on it and you really put it in the context of films at that time, Jeff Murphy has got seven or eight things going all at always. And you're jumping from one sequence to another sequence. And that's what's revolutionary about that movie for its time. And that's why it's, it's, those are the, the, the best things about the movie. Sure, the fact that, you know, we were a bunch of cowboys in, in uh, Colorado and, and Peter Green was one of the rudest and most obnoxious people that's ever uh, walked the earth and as a consequence got beaten up by cowboys every single night and would show up on the set with his boots filled with his own blood every oh morning or, or, you know, all kinds of stories like that. And, right. <clears throat> and I include them all in the book, but the, what is significant in cinema terms is what Jeff Murphy did. And by the way, they almost destroyed him because of it. Because the movie only made about $70 million, only made 70 million. And they were expecting it to make, you know, uh, you know, how many, how much, you guys like Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah. Brilliant movie, correct? Yeah. Wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. Perhaps one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, and everybody's really ro- most romantic moment between Madeline Stowe and and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, the camera swirling about them. And all they do is kiss, and it's so powerful romantically. And... <clears throat> I've talked to CAA agents and stuff, and they go, oh, man, that movie, it only made 70 or 80 million. I mean, so their context of how they judge a successful movie is crazy. Um, yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, and this is the same kind of sensibility that judged for a while Raging Bull a failure when it's now regularly put in the top 10 of all greatest movies of all time. Yeah, it's one of my so, um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, it's a funny business. Um, yeah. I had a grand time. You'll enjoy reading about it. And, and oh, yeah, it. definitely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people do actually consider this Seagal's last best movie. <laughs> Before, you know, well, straight to video my, realm. But. My wife and I watched the current batches, and we consider them high camp uh, and <laughs> hilarious because... <laughs> The, so, the whole model is just really bizarre. Right, um, right. I know I could use those guys in a, in a significant way. Um, uh, but because of who they are, I call them the gang of six. Uh, Gary Busey, Michael Madsen, Mickey Rourke, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal. Um, who else? Um Anyway, and Peter Green. If you're producing a movie, you've got to isolate them from the rest of the world. You've got to make sure they can't destroy your project or get uh, the production sued for sexual harassment or violence and keep them close to the food truck. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, hire Jean-Claude as a deaf mute uh, and use him... <laughs> for the way that he needs to be used. Right. And then you can get a significant performance out of it. Right, but, right, right. Uh, and I think I can do that yeah, because they sure. they respect me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the funny thing is you, 
I get a version of people that is sometimes the rose colored version because being six foot two and, and scary and, you know, they think that I'm going to tear them apart limb for limb. So they don't give me a problem, but they give the weakest person on the production, the craft service girl, a problem or whatever, or they tear right. the director up and threaten to kill the director or, or do something else that's self-destructive to a project. So as a producer, if you're going to use those guys, and most of the producers I know, you know, I mean, the one thing about Mickey is Mickey is supremely talented, you know, and he, he'll he deliver the goods, but, you know, he may end up getting the director killed. Because if these guys don't respect you, you're in deep, deep trouble. Right. And Michael Madsen, you know, obviously he doesn't give Quentin Tarantino a hard time. But if he's drinking, he's going to either phone it in or it's going to be a mess. Right. You know, and here I go with the truth again. Every time I do one of these shows, I think I'm never going to work ever again <laughs> in the business. But the truth is, I think some people appreciate the truth mm -hmm. about these things. Yeah. And there's a way to use these guys for, to elevate them and to elevate you you don't want them to rip your production apart you right. don't want their them stealing all of the money and not delivering the goods but you've got to do that the truth is in in at their best i love all of them right at their soul they're really good people mm -hmm. but all this external stuff gets involved, it gets involved and the, yeah. the journey through the organic brain damage substance abuse or the flaws and everything gets in the way. And so you've got to be very adept if you're going to deploy them in a movie, uh, in a production of any kind. Copy because copy. doing productions is such a significant challenge anyway. The financing, the creation of something really good. you got to make sure you've got warriors who are going to go down that road with you, you know, that who are going to be better at their job than you are, that are going to be significantly masters of what they do. One thing I've learned as a producer and a team builder uh, is hire the best people that you can uh, to surround yourself with the best people. Sometimes you have to bring somebody along on a learning curve. That's different than somebody who's genuinely destructive uh, in their behavior that's going to really influence uh, negatively the production. So um, you want to minimize that. Get really good people to move forward. I'm saying this to your filmmaker out there in your audience. You know, hire people that are going to deliver the goods and are going to support you in your journey. Great advice. Great advice. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on. Keep it going here. Eraser. Really and this enjoyed. is a journey through my entire career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really enjoyed you in this. And I, I think this is an extremely underrated Arnold Schwarzenegger film. I think this is a kick-ass action movie. I really enjoy it. Well, it's a popcorn movie. It's yeah. really well done. It's, it's a big-budget popcorn movie. It was yeah. immensely popular. Um, Arnold is a superb guy. I love nice. working with him. He's super fun. Um, <laughs> he's really irreverent and just a complete wonderful guy to work with. Uh, he's, he's a master at surrounding himself with really good people, like I just told you. And that's why he became governor of California. Uh, that's why, aside from his own charm and his own 
utter discipline of craft, his own utter discipline of bodybuilding and who he was and the psychological ramifications of all of that. He is a champion and a tremendous icon and a really, really fun guy. Um, Chuck Russell, the director, tremendous technician, very dedicated to what he's doing. I mean, you're talking about 29 takes of opening a door. Now, from my opinion, anybody can direct a film if they're going to do 29 takes of opening a door. But he's a superb, slow, and methodical craftsman, and he put together a really great movie, and he's a great director. I really think, count myself lucky, to have worked with him. By the way, I got hired for that job because Peter Green was such an ass. I mean... <laughs> They wanted to hire Peter Green, yeah. and he, I, I believe he got arrested at the audition. Oh, my goodness. You know, so, um, and I probably made a couple hundred thousand dollars because of Peter Green's bad behavior. Um, so <laughs> these people are hurting themselves. They're right. not hurting the right. production. Right. And Peter is a superb actor. You know, yeah. he, did, he did The Mask and, and Pulp Fiction and Usual Suspects, but you know, substances and their own crazy behavior um, yeah. is destructive to them. And we all lose because of that, because we lose their performances that might occur, have occurred. Right, um, right. So there you go. Well, the Here I go, revealing a lot of stuff it's I fine. didn't mean to talk to. Hey, this is, why, this is why you're here. You're here to talk and be yourself. Yeah, Eraser is great. Really enjoyed that. Was that true? On the set of Eraser, that they actually were trying to have some kind of romantic angle between Arnold and Vanessa Williams, but they kept laughing. Like that's what I heard. Like they were supposed to look at each other romantically and maybe maybe kiss, but they kept laughing. So they just said, "Okay, they'll just be." You know, I never heard that. Okay, I, I heard Vanessa the rumor. Is, I, I worked with Vanessa a couple of times on Boomtown and this job. Okay, and she's a you know she's an incredible beauty and incredibly talented and a superhuman being so i i'm uh is arnold a jokester yeah he was unbelievably i i i he was an unbelievably funny guy to work with like he he took balloons and made them in the shape of a penis and and stuck it on chuck russell's back without him knowing it so chuck russell was wandering around the production for the entire day with a penis on his back, and he didn't know what was it. But that's that's Arnold. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If uh, that rumor was true, that would be really funny, actually, if that was true. About Vanessa? Yeah, like they tried to do a romantic thing, but they just kept both laughing. So there well, just, there's stuff like, about that in the book, too. Okay, all right, copy that. We'll read the book. All right. Well, you got to wait till favorites. it comes out, but the first one is out. And there's yes. a lot about Hollywood. Look, we know that, uh, uh, although I came from, a, I think is what is a unique background, but other people have to judge that for themselves. But um, uh, there is a lot of the Hollywood stuff in the first book. And uh, because we knew that was one of the driving reasons why people come to books like that. And so, but the second one is all show business all the time, except for COVID and politics and producing. Well, of course, producing and politics are both show business. Right, right. Copy that. Now, one of my favorites, boom, Last Man Standing. This is such a badass Bruce Willis flick. Really enjoyed it. Love Walter Hill. Now, I have to, I have to ask this question. 
was this you getting yanked by a cable or was that stunt guy did that? No, uh, I'm going out the door, but the yank okay. on the ratchet, I've done ratchets before. In fact, I did a ratchet in the opening scene of Death Warren. Um, but this is a guy named Dave Rowden who doubled me for years. Oh, and, wow. Um, Dave uh, always did a superb job. And uh, I actually thought he was he, he was going to get killed uh, because they made a mistake and didn't compute the um, height of the steps. And so they built the softened purse place where you land uh, way prematurely. And so Dave flew over that because they hadn't calculated the step, the height of the step. And he almost hits the truck across the street. Oh, my goodness. And Alan Graff, Alan Graff was the stunt coordinator. And I said, oh, my God, what happened with that? And he goes, what are you talking about? He talked about, what are you talking about? That wasn't a mistake. I said, well, if that wasn't a mistake, how come there's a patch dug up in the middle of the street? And he landed 30 feet beyond it. Oh, my you know, goodness. So, um, but it was a mistake. and But Dave just... Yeah, did a full somersault, landed on his back and his neck, and got up and walked home. And so he's a badass. He's, he <laughs> is a badass, and all stunt guys are badasses. Yep, they're 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 significant badasses. I have a section of my book called "Real Badasses I Have yeah. Known." Nice, nice. And the real badasses I've known are not me. The real badass I've known are guys who our robbery homicide with the LAPD for 25 years and uh, victors in multiple gun battles with some of the worst people on the planet and five-time world pistol shooting champions and uh, just real heroes. There are lots of heroes. Uh, I don't generally think most actors are heroes, although I think it's heroic sometimes to go out and do your own stunts and audition day after day and uh, bring the bacon home for your family. But, you know, a single mom who's raising kids uh, is a hero. So there's a lot of heroes out there. Um, I've known some badasses, Navy SEAL guys, Marine recon guys, um, both men and women, uh, wounded warriors who are suffering through – immense, immense challenges because of IED explosions or, or burns and uh, that would take your breath away if you go to visit them. It's one of the reasons why I advocate for vet, veterans as much as I can, because, um, you know, I think a society that doesn't take care of their warriors is not doing a very good job uh, of being a society, um, as well as a society that doesn't take care of its children and I don't think uh, the child support services in California is doing the best job. They're not very transparent, and the foster care system needs to be looked at and fixed. And our education system is really not functioning very well at all either, particularly in the public school environment. In, in quite the contrary, um, uh, our educators, many of them, are devoted to stopping competition in 
uh, our education and not allowing charter schools to proliferate when they do very, very well and children do better. So I think as a state, we need to be doing what's best for our children, what's best for our environment, what's best for our taxes. Our taxes are sprawling all over the place, and yet our streets aren't paved properly. Homelessness is all over the place and growing exponentially by the day and not being taken care of. There's very little affordable housing for people. That, so that's a situation that has to be solved. And that's why we're calling for design-worthy um, uh, affordable housing to be addressed. There's a whole host of things that, look, if you're in the filmmaking business, what do you do? You solve challenges to get the production made. If you're in government, you solve challenges to get the productions made, to get the uh, the landscape better for our kids. We're not turning an environment over that's better for our kids. We're not turning an educational system that's better than, for our kids. We're not. We're putting taxation that is mind-numbingly immense uh, with our, our our society, and we're not uh, driving the goods infrastructure-wise. Uh, we're not taking care of animals when they're being raised for food. Uh, there's a whole host of things that we as people in California, and it's going to take all of us, need to do a better job. Um, that's why I'm running to be governor of the state of California. Um, so what, Because we deliver the goods. Right. If we're a scriptwriter, an actor, uh, a producer, we deliver right. the goods. But the goods aren't being delivered by our government. And what are governments supposed to be formed for? To serve the people. Yes. That's what governor, governments were formed for. It says it right in the Declaration of Independence. It says it innumerably, innumerably in, in the Constitution. The government is there to serve the people, not to serve vested interests, not to serve the greed of the elite that we've elected into office and the oligarchies that are running a lot of things. It's not to serve special interests. It's to serve the people, all of the people. So uh, I'm not on a soapbox, but that's just the reality. Yeah. We're not being served by our governments. Copy that. And what 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 was some of the inspiration like what made you make the jump you were like i need to try and go ahead and go for this i have i've got i have been called to represent and uh go for governor well some of the things that were attractive to me is it was a very short concentrated election period rather than a two year period and so we could we could participate in the arena of ideas, we could flex our legs in the arena of ideas in a very truncated, very focused campaign. Um, and we could do it in largely a digital manner and a public speaking manner so that we didn't have to go out and take money from vested interests left, right, and center that would co-opt our message. The other thing is my father, I, I mentioned him, he got a silver star and a purple heart. What are these guys dying for in World War II or Vietnam or Afghanistan, if not for the preservation of ideals about this, what this country was founded for? This country was founded under certain principles of equality, certain principles of governance by, for, and of the people. 
And that's not what's occurring here. And so when I look for uh, inspiration, despite the fact that some of them own, own slaves, I look to Jefferson and Washington and the guys who signed the Declaration of Independence. They put their lives and their fortunes on the line against the greatest empire of its day, the British Empire. And they triumphed because, and they created a great land and a great idea. And yes, I'm very proud of the conversation that Americans have been having for a long, long time. And they're ongoing about equal justice before the law and crime and law enforcement's relationship to the community. I'm proud of that conversation because we're all participating in that. Even if it gets a little prickly, even if it becomes a little riotous, it's part of our heritage to get to the higher ground as Americans and as Californians. So our campaign, you know, I had an epiphany at the beginning of COVID. I, I, I used to love to debate. I don't really like to debate. This campaign isn't about debate. This campaign is about empathy and elevation for all, all people. It's not about political parties. It's not about Republican or Democrat. Even though I'm a registered common sense Democrat, our platform on KillPatrickForGovernor.com, KillPatrickForGovernor.com, embraces good ideas from both sides. Whether the inspiration is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whether the inspiration is something from Ronald Reagan, whether the inspiration is from forward thinkers like Elon Musk, great ideas come from all different kinds of parts of the, the, the social landscape. Yes. And so we are all in boxes right now. You're Republican, you're Democrat, you're conservative, you're liberal, you're uh, far right, you're far left, you're somewhere in the middle. Well, we're all supposed to be Americans. For some time, I've wondered why there isn't a, an American party, why there isn't something so, but strategically, I said, I need to run as a Democrat, because in some ways, I think the Democratic Party needs to be uh, revolutionized as well. I think the Republican Party needs to be revolutionized. We need to start working together as a united people to get things done, to right. get things authentically done, rather than just talking points, rather than just raising money, rather than... We need to get the job done. That's what we do as actors. That's what we do as screenwriters. That's what we do as movie producers. That's what we do as an entertainment teacher. That's what we do as a journalist or a playwright. Whatever the endeavor is, you get the job done. And the job's not getting done by people with vision, drive, and skill. And we can do better in this state. We can do better as human beings as we go forward every step of the way. So that's why I ran. And that's why we're having fun in the campaign. And that's why we're tickled pink when our, our ideas are being co-opted by the existing regimes to make their campaign have some relevance for the for people across the state. So onward and upward, guys. That's basically, uh, that's the point. I like it. Unity coming together to make... <laughs> The world well, a better place. We're that's one what I'm people. About. No matter whether or what our heritage is. That's that's what, right. 
I was raised that the American ideal was for anybody who came here and rolled up their sleeves and participated. Why can't we have our undocumented people who, in my experience, in my world, are the most energetic, they most get America, they most get the state of California and the opportunity it, 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 it affords them. We, why can't we secure our border and bring our undocumented people out with a clear path of citizenship, with a guest worker card, and a fine for illegal entry that they pay over 10 years? Why can't we come up with solutions like that? That's what we do in the film business. How do I make this visual original and evocative and more visually and cinematically powerful? And how do I reduce my budget? That's the whole game on a certain level. Yeah. You know, sometimes you have to spend money. Sometimes you have to collect taxes. Sometimes you have to do that. But you have to spend your money wisely and get your most bang for your buck that you put up on the screen. It's simple. I've got to hire uh, good people. I've got to take care of them. I've got to pay them well. But they've got to deliver the goods every day. What's so challenging about this and coming up with solutions so that it can work for everybody? Right. I agree. Unity. Mm -hmm. Come together. Let's do it. Stop wasting time. Isn't it fine for that? Doesn't it feel like that's why I'm saying I don't want to talk about debate. I don't want to debate about things. What's the challenge? How do we preserve our environment? Well, we right. put a uh, we put solar panel and wind panel on places throughout the state, and even landlords, because a lot of people live in apartments. H- how do we get pure food and water? Well, we propagate uh, preferential water rates for organic farmers, and we subsidize that so that that grows, and our agriculture stops polluting the topsoil and polluting agricultural workers. We're working out there in the fields every day for them. And we also are providing pure food for our populace and the global populace because California exports food all over the place. How do we get organic lunches into our schools for the same cost or less than what it costs to give them drivel and stuff that's just fed out? Well, we know we can do it because we did it in Santa Barbara. For my kids, uh, elementary and 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 public high school, middle school, why you know it can be done. It can the the systems exist to get all these things done. Why can't we charge everybody fifteen percent for their taxes, corporations and individuals? And the only deductions are for ecological things like you buy a hydrogen car or you. Put your kids through college, you can deduct that, or mortgage interest to help you get onto the ladder of home ownership. Why can't we do charge corporations 15%? Why are corporations like Amazon and those places paying no taxes? That's not fair. Why are, are, are people who have money allowed to get out of paying taxes when everybody else is paying 52% of their taxes? Now, that sounds like a very socially liberal thing. But at the same time, why can't we secure our border, which is very much a Republican thing? We all need to come across with really good visionary ideas and get it done. We got to stop thinking in boxes. I'm a rock and roll fan, so I don't like classical music. So the radio station, you know, one of the reasons in Britain, they have such great stuff come out of the radio stations is for a long time, there was just two radio stations. 
or and the BBC. And so the grandmothers listen to the Rolling Stones and the kids listen to Beethoven. So they all get the education in the whole realm of music. Nice. Instead, we get classic rock and that selection is great. Right. But we need to, if you're making a soundtrack for a movie, you use all different kinds of music. Right, right. People right. ask me, what kind of music do you like, Patrick? I like anything. I like the sound of this rapping on the table. If it works for the film and the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 if your audience has ever heard of a guy named James Horner, we revere people like Beethoven. I'm getting pretty far afield now, but we revere people like Beethoven and Bach, and rightly so. Yeah. But if you study the music of James Horner, who's yeah. a contemporary guy, it doesn't get any, it gets very little um, admiration except That's for very shame. select people in the movie business. Right. The guy's talent is so off the charts. Aliens. It's unbelievable. He's the been involved in every significant movie yeah. for our entire generation. Name it, and he's done it. Yeah. So there's a lot of talent out there, and these talents oh, yeah. just need to be put to work. And I think we can do a really good job and try to have a joyous time while we're doing it. Because yeah. here's another thing that Papa Patrick is saying. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing you can do is abdicate joy in life for a futuristic goal, but you have to decide how much of that you have to do. The best thing is to enjoy the process while you're achieving that goal. And so my advice is never lose your joy in the process. Sometimes that's hard if you're sick or you're getting really worn down by the systems of life. But try to have some grace and joy. That's what I want for my life, to have some grace and joy as I go through. I don't always succeed, but I sure as hell pick myself up and say, please, God, let me have some grace and joy I in like every that. moment of my life. Um, I like that. Papa Patrick. That's right. <laughs> grace and joy. Unity. That's right. Let's bring it together. We That's are right. one. We are one. Y'all know what y'all know what you need to do. Vote. For Patrick Kilpatrick for governor. Y'all know what you, do, you need to do. That's right. You can't kill the Sandman. Come on now. Y'all know what no, y'all need to you do. Can't. You can't. I'm Time to son. vote. <laughs> sons of the American Revolution. You can't put a good Sons of the American Revolution down. There you, go, way, there you go. Your audience know, you know who's won more congressional medals of honor than any other ethnic group? Latin, Latins. Latins. They have more congressional medals of honor than any other ethnic group. Look at that. So all of us have our place to play in the heroic landscape of America. And I hope you'll join me to 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 stir up some dust so we yeah. make the, the, the world a better place. Yeah. And I hope you enjoy Uncommon Dialogues films when they come up. If I win, I'll have to put that into trust and let other people um, run it. But they're very skilled and they'll be able to do it. Um, it's all about service for us. Uh, it's service to the audience, service to our investors, service to the scriptwriter. If I haven't created the script myself, I have a very, my team doesn't let me get away with anything. And least of all, my wife, she doesn't let me get away with anything either. If it doesn't <laughs> ring true, then we're going to be fixing it. So right, right, there right. you Copy go. That. Copy that. Well, this was an honor and a privilege to have you here, my friend. 
Don't forget, chat, vote. That's right, for Patrick, for governor. Also, don't forget to buy the book, Dying for a Living. You know there's going to be a lot of awesome, interesting stories in there. And it's going to just wet your whistle for volume two that's going to be coming out soon. There's a link in the description box below of this video for you guys. Y'all you, you, know where to go. Website, everything is there. That's right. Support this man. And uh, I, you know, I could talk to you all day, Patrick, but I know you got things to do. We didn't One thing I want to add. We didn't even get the minority report yet, but it's all right. But it's, well, I don't want to keep you. Tom's wonderful. I don't get the Scientology thing, but it works for him. And right. uh, we actually won Stunt of the Year award for that stuff. And, uh, oh, and phenomenal stuff in that movie. And uh, uh, I had a, I mean, there's not much better than working for Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I have some great stories about the deal, but you're talking about a really gracious, powerful, insightful guy with Tom and Stephen. Janos Kaminski, one of the most profane people I've ever met. Uh, the DP, an absolute genius of light and, and camera. Um, you're talking about a set that is happens very quietly, very professionally. Everybody gets the job done, and that's the way it happens. Um Plucked out of Dark Angel by Steven Spielberg. What a great, great honor that was. And I look to work with him again, I hope, one of these oh, days. Yeah. I mean, just the vast landscape of his tapestry of movies is really breathtaking. When you go from Close Encounters to Schindler's List to Saving Private Ryan to... Munich. Uh, I mean, everything he's done has been really extraordinary. I uh, I wanted to mention a young director who I really, as I travel around the, the independent realm doing different roles, I really like to hold on to those people and honor and support those people that I know are doing a superb job. There's a young director named Chris Falkins who directed a movie that's coming out <clears throat> called Catalyst. Mm. And Chris is really dedicated and really skilled. And I have high hopes for Catalyst. There's a movie out now called Night Walk, and I hope uh, your fans enjoy my performance in that. And uh, I hope that they'll look for all the Uncommon Dialogue films coming. And, and uh, uh, I think you'll love them. Oh, yeah. Like, we're, <laughs> we're, we're excited for any future. In fact, I know you'll love projects. them more. Maybe you need to watch them again when you're in a better mood. <laughs> Which one? You know, sometimes movies are so interesting because yeah. you if you give some movies a second chance, uh -huh. you know how, how, how it's like. And Because most movies, if they're really skillfully done, uh, we're all involved with our daily lives. We're all involved with wherever we are at that particular moment. Particular moment. So you watch a series like Narcos or you watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan or 300 or Braveheart or some of the other great things, Will Ferrell movies. They're little things you don't catch the first time you watch those movies. That's why re-watching those movies are so, so it's so rewarding to watch those things happen. So um, Yeah, I just re-watched Braveheart last night. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it transcends generations. My young son... That way he's 24 now. But when he was very young, Braveheart was absolutely the, the, the total movement. And there's superb directing. That brings up Mel Gibson. There's a superb director. You know, when the little boy comes out and he knows they're coming to tell him 
this will make me cry too. He he they know he knows he's they're coming to tell him that his brother and his father have been killed. And a lesser director would have sent that little boy up to the legs of the dead bodies on the horses and have him weep. What did Mel Gibson have him do? He had the little boy turn away and go to the well to get some water. And that's brilliant directing. Yes. That's real mastery of what you need to do. The first Rocky, you know. Um, Classic. Instead of coming in close on um, Burgess Meredith and, and Sylvester Stallone at the end of their great scene where Burgess Meredith comes to have him be his manager and he gets expelled by Sly. Uh, well, instead of coming in close on him, the director took it from way back and you see the two of them alone on the street together. Tears me up. Yeah. It tears yeah. me up because brilliant directing is something to absolutely behold. And uh, that's what we aim at at Uncommon Dialogue Films. Uh, well, I can't wait. I can't wait for all your future projects. It's the only game in town, brother. Yeah. And everybody watching right now, Chad, all your fans, uh, they can't wait either. To see future projects from Patrick here. We got uh, here we got Heather says, Good luck, Patrick. Thank you for the great movies. Look at that. No, thank you. Here. It's been fans. a privilege and I've really enjoyed every job. Sometimes people ask me which job that you enjoy the most. The truth is I loved every one of them, like you'd love each one of your children. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got something brilliant out of and there's more about that in the book. <laughs> Copy that. Get the I'll book. See you Get guys. the book. Uh, really, before you go, Robert says, last last comment, uh, thanks for brightening my childhood, youth, and adulthood with your amazing performances and so many of my favorite TV shows and movies. Huge respect for you. Thank you. So that, Thank that you. Thank you very much. That means a lot because it means you're touching somebody and you're reaching somebody. Yeah. With what Patrick, it was an honor, my friend, to have you here. That's right. The Sandman himself. Make sure you vote. Buy the book. Yes, and, vote. Uh, Make this your second home, Patrick. You're always welcome to come back anytime, talk about any future projects or movies or anything. Always come back, my friend. You're you got welcome. it. Thank you. I'll certainly do that. All Thank right. you very much. Thank you so God much, bless. Patrick. I'll Have see fun. you. I'll keep in touch. You're Don't doing a great job with the visuals oh, and everything. Thank here. you, sir. And the questions. God bless. Right, Cheers. Take care, Patrick. Thank you. Don't go anywhere, Tony.